Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to The News Meeting, where we bring you into the newsroom to hear the arguments that happen in meetings just like this every day. I'm Liz Mosley. I'm an editor at Tortoise. I'm not James Harding. He is away. And in this episode, three Tortoise journalists will each pitch the story that they think mattered most this week. Together, we're going to make sense of them. And at the end, it's my job for the first time to try and make a judgment about what the lead story should be. So from Tortoise, this is the news meeting. Joining me to pitch their stories are Alexi Mostris, who is Head of Investigations at Tortoise and is the host of global smash hit podcast Sweet Bobby and Hopes. Hi, Alexi. Hey. Kat Nealon is Tortoise's political editor. Good morning, Kat. Hello. And Mark St. Andrew organises all the live events at Tortoise. Hi, Mark. Hi, Liz. Before we hear what they think mattered most this week, here's a quick reminder of what's happened in the past seven days. Russian authorities tonight are accusing Ukraine of launching a drone attack on the Kremlin in an attempt to assassinate President Vladimir Putin. We don't attack Putin or Moscow. Today, writers across the country took to the picket line, protesting in front of studios from Los Angeles to here in New York. It's looking busy here on the mound. You can see it's already uh, full of people who've been here some time, even though the coronation itself isn't until Saturday morning. Clashes with police, smashed windows. Paris is once again alight as angry people protest unpopular plans to push the minimum retirement age to 64. The man widely seen as the godfather of artificial intelligence has quit his job at Google, warning of the dangers of AI. Right now, they're not more intelligent than us, as far as I can tell. But I think Okay, let's find out what my lovely colleagues think we should be covering this week. So we'll start with long story short. I want to know what your story is without you actually telling me what your story is. In a single sentence, Alexi, what have you got? So this is how the world ends. (laughs) Cheery stuff. Got it. (laughs) Um, Should we all pack up and... (laughs) And Kat? for the hills. Uh, mine is House of Cards. Okay, interesting. Mark? Talks fail, cut to black. Mm, interesting. Okay, let's start with Alexi. Um, explain to me, uh, how does the world end and how long have we got? <laughs> well, we might have uh, fewer than five years. Jeffrey Hinton is the, the godfather of modern artificial intelligence. He's uh, a British guy. He moved to Toronto sort of 40 years ago and in the uh, last four decades has absolutely pioneered basically everything that is going on in AI now. The reason why you can play around with ChatGPT is because of 
of Jeffrey Hinton. Uh, so he started off working on these things called neural networks, and he was one of the pioneers. Everyone else was like, it's crazy even to try this. But he pressed ahead. And now in the last 10 years, computers have become basically powerful enough to prove his point. And this week, he quit Google, where he's worked for a, a long time, because he wanted to warn the world about the dangers of AI. And he, he basically says, you, you, we all have to wake up. And he highlights a number of concerns, ranging from the stuff that can kind of happen now, which is like industrial-scale misinformation, all the way up to killer robots. And this kind of sci-fi Terminator-esque idea that has been dismissed for years as like panic, he says could happen. And, and, and the AI could get more intelligence than humans much more quickly than he'd previously thought. Okay, so he's there in Toronto building these neural networks out of code i'm using that terminology it's probably the wrong thing but he's kind of yeah yeah um (laughs) and you say everybody said he was crazy and he shouldn't do it but he pressed ahead anyway is he being paid by google at that point no so like this is right at the start of his career basically there was like two schools of ai one was like we need to train these models using like logic and code and he was like no you need to think about them much more like biology much more like brains and we need to get to a point where they can try and work out stuff for themselves and at that point computers weren't really powerful enough to to prove him right and everyone says jeffrey you're, you're crazy, but he Leave off head. Jeff. Leave off Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Leave it. Then much later on, he ended up working for Google. And he's worked for Google for a long time uh, at the sort of the center of everything that they are doing. So like, you know, the stuff that they brought in to compete with ChatGPT, this chatbot called Bard. He was like behind uh, a lot of the technology behind that. He's been like right at the center of basically everything. So when he quits, we need to pay attention. There's a dimension to this story, as I understand it, which is, um, in his commentary about why he's taken the decision to stand down and why he's sending this warning that the the big technology companies, the likes of Google and Microsoft, are in some way bad actors in the whole AI space. Is that right? So when you read his interview with the New York Times, he actually makes a number of different criticisms. And one of them is, you're exactly right, it's about Microsoft versus Google in basically a, a global race for, for AI domination. And how, how does that kind of commercial, commercial imperative, how is that commercial imperative reined in by any sort of regulation? Mm. And, and mm. he's saying it's not. Mm. But he's also saying that the technology is dangerous, is dangerous enough that proper bad actors can use it for repression or whatever. So you could have the head of a you know, Middle Eastern dictatorship using this this AI technology to help repress a population. And he, that's one of the things that he highlights as a as a risk. Is he right? I think he is. I think I think it is really, really dangerous to have a situation where you talk to like really, really kind of key experts in this space. And they say, we don't really understand how this technology works. And we don't really understand where it's going. Like that is not something that so you want to have. The people who are best at building them don't know how they work. Exactly. Right. This is a difficult story. I feel terrified about AI anyway. Um, but I don't know how to orient 
my sense of fear as a as a reader. I don't know how to sort of on the spectrum, which is I'm irritated by the chatbot that wants to know if it can help me when I'm trying to sort out my mobile phone bill. Mm. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got Terminator. Like how how can how do I figure out who who is the individual human being or beings or organisations who are, who are mediating this stuff? Because that's really the point of what he's saying, which is that nobody is. Yeah, exactly. So I think that. The, the powerful thing that he's done is not just say, ah, kill a robot, because that's way too far in the future and we wouldn't be able, even but if you it's said like five, five years. To, well, he, he said general, artificial general intelligence, which is what might lead to the killer robots coming okay. along, might now happen within five years. And he used t- to just think it was 30 to me what to, that yeah. can do. What is artificial general intelligence? It's a computer that can think for itself. So, so like, there are two basic fears around AI. One is artificial general intelligence and one is like forget that that's in the future ai is already bad look at the ways it's already bad but with artificial general intelligence what that basically means is when computers become more intelligent than us and at that point what hinton is saying is he can't think of many examples of less intelligent things controlling more intelligent things (laughs) Mm. and if you have more intelligent things that already have been Sometimes trained with my in my children, like, it can be like yeah. that. But yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, uh, me too. So, but but basically, like when when a when a computer can have the ability to effectively kind of think for itself, it already knows how to code. It already knows how to do misinformation. It already mm. knows how to manipulate. Then you're in trouble. Mm. Okay. But there's all sorts of stuff that even before that point, AI can do that is bad, that Hinton says that regulators really need to get a handle on. So you can already go on Twitter today and see misinformation generated by ChatGPT. Yeah, got it. That's a clear and present danger. What do you think of this story? Like you, I do feel terrified by it and terrified at the sense that I don't know how we, what we do with this. But Obviously, Jeffrey Hinton is not the first person that has warned about this. You know, there was a, a video of Elon Musk um, saying, oh, yeah, you know, we actually need you regulator guys to step in because, oopsie, we kind of made things worse. Um, and, um, you know, if Elon Musk is saying it, Stephen Hawkins said it, you know, it, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of very clever people saying this is quite bad. Um, so I think, and, and in terms of the sort of sci-fi dystopian kind of which world are we in, some of the stuff that Jeffrey Hinton was talking about made me think of the midwitch cuckoos when one of them learns something and they all then know mm-hmm. how to do it. And it's yeah. it's it's that kind of thing of, of this scary kind of alien race that could um, sort of take over. Mm. Um, and the idea that um, if you have... Um, you know, let's just say for argument's sake, well, the UK is sort of reviewing things and the US might pause it. But what if Iran or China or Russia do stuff? So you get these kind of bad actors that they can insert code into an AI system that says, I need more power. And then they become really yeah. powerful. And then, you yeah. know, then that's when you get your terminators. It's more conceivably possible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I think we need is this kind of... Um, like a kind of nuclear non-proliferation treaty type thing that you know would all countries would sign up to and perhaps make it as part of a sort of trading agreement or whatever but certainly these sort of conversations need to be happening at a global multilateral level mark what do you reckon 
So I, I'm sort of divided a little bit because I kind of wonder if when we get to sort of five to 20 years time or whatever Jeffrey Hinton is talking about, we'll look back at this time in the same way we look at those sort of black and white pictures of guys with sandwich boards saying the end of the world is nigh, you know, during the depression and stuff. And I think of that and then I think, you know, will I just still be struggling to get my calendars to sync on my phone with my laptop? <laughs> um you might but be, then, but the robots know but, exactly what day it is. <laughs> I'm not going to laugh at the robots in case they come for me. But the but uh, the thing I thought was interesting to me is that uh, Jeffrey Hinton has said that he felt he had to leave Google so that he could make the comments he made without damaging Google. And uh, I think uh, th there's an interview he did in Forbes about four-ish years ago where he quite strongly rejects the idea that intervention by governments and oversight boards is required, which makes me think, oh, I don't think he's had a change of heart. It makes me wonder, can you trust the big tech companies and the spokespeople for those big mm. tech companies and the scientists of those big tech companies? Mm. You know, how much was Google involved in what Jeffrey Hinton was saying a few years ago, saying regulation is completely not needed and everything else? Yeah. And I, I think there's something there about trust yeah. and, and, and the governance of the, of the tech companies. Interesting. Thank you very much, Alexi. Let's go on to our next story. Kat, what do you got? House of Cards. So House of Cards, the subtitle is why the Tories' failure to get to grips with the housing crisis could be existential for them. So obviously, local elections has been dominating Westminster this week. In PMQs, Keir Starmer went very hard on housing. Um, and that is because it is going up the, the order of magnitude of problems and issues that people want resolved. Um, and so uh, sort of looking at the... the what did he of, say? So Keir Starmer took aim at Rishi Sunak in PMQs, uh, saying that because he had decided to scrap housing targets, he was killing the dream of home ownership for a generation. And as we then saw later that day, when there was a row that kind of erupted on the Tory WhatsApp groups, in which they said, we cannot be the NIMBY party. Hang on, hang on, Kat. NIMBYism? It stands for not in my backyard. Oh, yes, lovely. It was quite interesting that the people who sort of got involved in that, so Greg Hands put something on the group talking about oh, um, uh, Labour's plan or suggestion that they should look at the green belt as somewhere to build on will play badly for them in the locals, Greg Hands being the party chairman. Mm -hmm. um, Taylor's oldest time, though, that. Don't build houses on the green belt because the local people don't like it. Well, yes, but the green belt is not always as green as it sounds. Indeed. Um, and, and this is the point, I think, that a lot of people make, and some of them are in the Conservative Party, but currently the kind of dominant strand of thinking is more on the sort of NIMBY side of things. So um, Rishi Sunak kind of blinked with a, a, a planning reform bill um, because he knew there was going to be a lot of uh, rebels that were going to make it the, his biggest defeat. Um, and so he, rather than face that, um, he backed off and the, the sort of targets got dropped. They are still sort of uh, nominally committed to this sort of national um, house building target of 300,000 by the mid-2020s. But in the post-PMQ huddle that we have with uh, spokespeople from Number 10 and the PM's press secretary, they were very wishy-washy about it, calling it an aspiration, not being... Uh, so they're not going to deliver it? Not giving a time frame, you know, sure. um, when is the mid-2020s, yeah. some might say, that was 2025, yeah. you know, uh, but they wouldn't 
commit to it. Um, And and also, you know, how do you hit the national target if the local targets don't exist? So the the politics that I think is odd here is um, this particular thing of uh, the levelling up secretary, uh, Michael Gove, Mm. rejecting a planning application for quite a significant number of new houses on the basis that the houses weren't very nice. Yes. Now, I I can think think of a lot of reasons why somebody might reject a set of planning applications, Mm -hmm. because I'm not really here for the position which is, the nice housing developers, all they want to do is help people have a house. I'm not sure it's entirely altruistic on their part. But, you know, um, there isn't sufficient local infrastructure. Mm-hmm. The impact on the local environment would be too too much. The materials and processes you're using to put up the houses don't meet standards. Whatever. There's lots of legitimate reasons I can see why you might go, actually, no, this isn't OK. But I don't really like them very much. Would seem to be quite a tough position. Well, it's entirely subjective as well, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how you justify things on the basis of that doesn't look very pretty. Um, it doesn't seem like a kind of legally robust uh, position to take, which is presumably why Barclay Homes are now, uh, you know, taking Michael Gove slash the government to court. Does building new homes, is it a vote winner? Yes. Right. So it's a vote winner, but in a slightly oblique way in that... Um, of course, there is a, a very strong NIMBY, you know, the reason why there are NIMBY MPs is because there are NIMBY voters, right? Yeah. You don't want your lovely, beautiful village in the Cotswolds or whatever to suddenly have a, a massive sort of thousand home uh, development right next to it. But um, the there are sort of lots of uh, surveys and studies that sh- show um, home, o- home ownership is one of the clearest indicators uh, for voting Conservative. Hmm. So if you look, uh, in 2019, 57% of owner-occupiers and 43% of mortgage holders voted Conservative compared with 22% slash 33% for Labour. Um, so... It's it's a it's a you can't say it's not causative though. There's a correlation, but um, presumably that's just about wealth in general. It's no, it's it's so it used to be age right. um, yeah, yeah. was kind of the the key indicator of how you voted, but it's but it's it's home ownership and the fact that home ownership um, is is getting later in life um, means that there are effectively fewer people coming through the system who are going to vote. Conservative. How and would three hundred thousand that... new homes affect people's ability to afford those homes? Because it would induce introduce more into the supply. But is that number of houses material? A year. A year. Oh, I see. Okay, got it. Lexi, are we interested in housing? Well, I think it's. I think it's a massive issue, and it's a thing that thing that a lot of people people care about. But I, I don't. I don't quite understand the relationship between. The Tories finding it difficult to uh, build three hundred thousand homes a year, and what Gove is doing in this particular case. Well, because um, the specific speaks to the universal, so he's blocked one hundred and sixty-five homes from being built. You know, if you can't get 165 homes built in Tunbridge Wells, then you're going to really struggle getting 300,000 homes built in the rest of the I country. I think the, the, the other 295,000, I think they're, they're mainly in Bista. Um, <laughs> Mark? I'm going to end up doing this again. I did this last time we talked about housing and Michael Gove. I'm sort of coming out in his defence, which is that 
if the, the strategy as I see it is that if they can guarantee that sort of more of these intensively built homes have greater curb appeal, mm. that makes it easier in the long run to kind of sidestep a lot of what some people would view as like the, 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 the petty objections by these local housing committees that say, we don't want 100 homes built outside our village that look like Legoland cookie cutter houses. So if... By taking a stand for sympathetically designed housing, and as I understand it, the Tunbridge Wells site is right right next to a nature reserve and, and, and all the rest of it. I think if they can take a stand against sympathetically designed housing, I do see that as a good move in the longer term strategy to get more housing applications over the line. Okay. Thank you, Kat. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mark. So we're going the, to Hollywood, right? We're going to Hollywood. This is the story of the writer's strike in America. So as of one minute past 12 a.m. on Tuesday this week, the Writers Guild of America went on strike. And this is after something like I don't know, six weeks of talks uh, with the uh, Alliance of Motion Picture and TV Producers. There's quite a lot of acronyms in this world, um, which represents the nine biggest studios. So Disney, Netflix, Comcast, Apple, um, and, and, and all the others. As a union, this is something like 12,000 writers. And they have downed tools. And the reason I think this story is important is there, there are three parts to it. The first part is, this is an industry which is going through its biggest upheaval since World War II. Um, it's also the first time that uh, uh, one of the big creative industries is taking a decisive stand against the march of AI. Um, and it also brings into question the value that we place on creative jobs. Okay, let's unpick that a little bit. You've got 12,000 members of this union. Yeah. As I understand it, those 12,000 people, they write all the films and all the TV that is produced by these studios. You can't write for those studios unless you are a member of the union, right? That's right. And it's worth uh, bearing in mind that throughout different stages of development and production of, say, a TV series, that thing, lots of things get worked on and written that never even see the light of day. 
through you know so there will be writers rooms working on pilots that never get broadcast mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and everything else I feel like they're, they're doing like 12,000 people feels like not very many people to produce all of the telly even that it's, I watch it's yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of people and the, 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 so the WGA says that writers are facing an existential crisis um, the so hang on hang on you said that this is we're just going to break it down the industry is going through its biggest upheaval since the war really yeah. really briefly what is it what is the upheaval so the upheaval so in the war, the upheaval was people stopped going to cinema and started watching telly. Right. So, pe- so the production model shifted from films and feature films okay. from the big studios to television production. And what now? Something to do with streaming? And now it's TV to some outfits you may have heard of like Netflix and, and so Disney+. Pe- Plus. So, so there's less work for film writers because they're all being employed on TV shows? No, it's, it's, it's things like the length of a typical TV series on a broadcast network in the US is something like... 22 episodes upwards the typical length of a series on netflix yeah will be much shorter somewhere between 8 and 13 episodes and as a writer the best way to think of it is you get paid really the number of times your name appears on screen in the credits but the production time of a series on netflix can be about the same length as a production time in in broadcast television so that's the first thing so the 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 they're sort of they're getting paid less per so there's show, an element yeah. of the strike which is about restructuring how they are remunerated, yeah. basically. Okay, and, that's one thing. And then the bit, well, and then there's the, the big part of the remuneration is also the residuals, because what's a residual? So residuals are when a, a TV show, the actors, the director, the writers, everyone who gets paid to produce the show, when that show is sold, repeated, they get extra money, like like the rights royalties. For your, yeah, the yeah. royalties exactly. Yeah, okay, exactly. And in the old days, a production a studio could make a show, and it could be syndicated across different TV networks. It could be sold abroad, and and writers and 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 film crew would get regular residual checks. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue with streaming is that, um, first of all, the residual rates are much lower okay. because they are a legacy from the early days of streaming, you know, when, when it wasn't a huge deal and the emphasis was on residuals for TV. Okay. So there is a legacy issue there. But also, the streaming uh, services increasingly demand exclusivity. Which means if you've sold your series to Netflix... It just sits in Netflix forever. Exactly. And you can't sell it anywhere else, often across multiple territories. Just really briefly then, you mentioned AI. I'm looking at Alexi. Um, Are those big studios, the nine big studios, have they got robots writing TV shows? They have got robots doing things like reading scripts and providing notes. They've got uh, uh, AI producing rewrites. Uh, condensing material and what's interesting is the WGA is demanding a blanket ban in in the basic minimum contract that they that the union has with the studios that no AI will ever go anywhere near a piece of written work it will never be write a piece of uh, uh, material to be filmed Mm -hmm. it will never rewrite something that a human writer has written they want a complete kind of sort of set of guardrails around the writing function as far as AI is concerned. So Alexi you mate Jeff it's not just the killer robots he's ruined telly as well. He has. He, well, not him, personally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the technology might. I, I don't know. I should care about this story. My sister-in-law is a Hollywood screenwriter. Oh. She is currently on strike. Wow. Uh, but I don't care about it. Well, I don't <laughs> oh. care about it much for two reasons. First, the last strike. I don't remember 
during the last track thinking, oh my God, my life is over. Yeah, the <laughs> telly did seem even, to work still, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, telly seemed to work, yeah. number one. Secondly, ah, I just can't have that much sympathy for TV writers and pay. You know, I'm looking at this Variety article here. I'm not sure if it's correct, but it says that the weekly minimum for a staff writer on a TV series works out at $131,000 annually for, for 29 weeks' work. Or an average of $90,000 on a streaming show for 20 weeks' work. Mm. That, I mean, that it's quite doesn't... a lot better than being a nurse. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. There are people in the world who are in a lot worse positions yeah. than some guys over in Hollywood complaining about TV. Yeah, but guys I, and gals, I think. I mean, I would, I would say to that... I was using the... that sort yeah, of yeah, figuratively. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, so my response to that would be that the number of ripe members of the union who were working on minimum wage has actually increased to about 49%. And across the union, they've seen their real-term wages drop something like 14% in the last five years. Cat, do you care about Hollywood writer strike? Um, f- for the same reasons as Alexi, I I kind of see that it's interesting, and I do remember being interested in it last time. But the ultimate sort of consequence to me is I might have to watch some repeats. Um, so I, I I can't get that excited about it. Although I do think um, that you it's unfair to compare American salaries to ours because they don't have you know, healthcare and things like that. You have to um, sort of factor that in. But I think the main reason is that we've had an awful lot of strikes in this country and um, it's hard to see how you can say screenwriters justify more time than nurses, doctors, teachers, etc., which are having a direct impact on people's lives here. I guess um, I'm going to just give you one final word in a sec, Mark. I absolutely hear where you're coming from, Kat and Alexi, on. It's, it's hard, given the striking situation we've got in this country, it's quite hard to muster mm. an emotional engagement with a faraway strike to people. You, you, you can't help but imagine them in the sun. You know, sort of, <laughs> I'm already annoyed about it, you know. <laughs> Tapping away on their little laptops, <laughs> exactly. drinking oh, their lattes. I, yeah. But, but um, <laughs> just if you can uh, crisply, and we quite glibly, you know, I... I mm. I'm thinking it's a good opportunity for me to catch up on all the telly that I haven't seen yet. You know, it'd be good to sort of be off the hook for three months so I could go back and watch The Sopranos. But what your what is really the the consequence? It is more serious than that because clearly this is a massive industry. It's global. It's not just this twelve thousand people. The contagion would be significant if it were to absolutely shut down Hollywood. For yeah. Example. So 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 in terms of what's on screen, I mean, uh, daily and weekly produced shows, all the late night talk shows are pretty much off the air already. Um, lots of series that would have gone into production during the negotiation phase over the last sort of two months were put on the back burner by studios so they wouldn't have to interrupt production. If the This is an industry that employs something like two and a half million people in the US. So the ripples will be far and wide. And when you say you wonder how the stories will affect, how this affects you personally, all I'd say is that a lot of the owners of these entertainment companies also own news divisions. And if someone, if enough people are taking a stand against AI taking the writer's jobs, these are probably your first bulwark of defence about AI taking journalist mm. jobs interesting that's fair point um, now you care so, <laughs> that's why we do podcasts no, we yeah. <laughs> okay those are the stories um, and in a moment I get to decide the running order but before we do that though I want to know which one you three would all lead with you can't use your own cat are you going to go with Jeff or are you going to go with Hollywood writers I'm going with Jeff I think Jeff and the Terminator Jeff is the Terminator Jeff and the Terminator is a great book title <laughs> 
there you go. Give that to the writers over in America. Um, no, I think I think that is a, a really serious, thorny issue that people need to wake up and listen to. Okay, Alexi. Uh, and I'm right back at you. I'm going to go with housing because I think that it is kind of one of the biggest issues uh, around today. It's going to be a, a, a critical issue uh, in uh, the elections. Thank you, Mark. I'm going to go with the housing because I think there's more to be uncovered, like I said, with the what goes on at a local level because I think that's actually the thing that causes a lot of the blockers. And I think the AI story is just part two of other warnings that we've had over the past sort of year or so. So I don't really know if it's newsworthy. Thank you. Oh. Brutal. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, everybody. I've really enjoyed uh, your stories. Um, I've made a call on what I think... I think about this. Controversially, I'm going to lead with Hollywood. And the reason I'm going to lead with Hollywood is because I think it quite neatly knits the AI story into reality. I think it's a helpful jumping off point to understand how aspects of the world that we take as red and as completely normal are already being unraveled by a technology that was invented without fully thinking through the consequences of it. And I like the pitch that you gave at the very, very end, Mark, which is that some the some of these organisations, these dynamics are a, a first line of defence when, you know, first they came for the journalists and we don't know what happened after that. Um, a kind of end of day scenario, which I think as a newsroom, it pays for us to to be mindful of. I'm going to follow it with the killer robots because it seems churlish not to. Um, and I think that the, the sort of the one, two of here's the reality of AI and then here's a, a, a really fulsome explainer about how we got here and what it means in that five-year, that specific five-year horizon, I'd really like to understand what is that artificial general intelligence? What do we mean when we say that? Because clearly we're not envisaging Terminator, but what are we envisaging? I think that's a really helpful, important thing to do. And I'm going to run housing third, not because I don't think it matters, but because I think that politically with the local elections um, here in the UK... If Starmer was going to make a proper play for housing, which would seem to be a smart thing if the Conservatives are going, you know, down the WhatsApp swanny worrying about being the the party of, of, of nimbyism, the local elections would be an interesting time for that strategy to play out. It just feels a little late to me that he would choose the day before the elections to try and have a bit of a crack at that. And I haven't quite fully got my head around the relationship, to Alexi's point, between Gove rejecting the houses because he doesn't like the look of them and Starmer having a go at this nimbyism thing. It just feels a little bit soupy to me. So, Hollywood, Jeff, housing. That is the news meeting this week. Thank you very much to Alexi, Kat and Mark and to you, of course, for listening. I'll be back in the editor's chair next week with three more tortoise journalists trying to convince me they've got the story that mattered most. In the meantime, please rate and review the news meeting on whatever podcast app you use. And this episode was produced by Rebecca Moore and the executive producer was Lewis Vickers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges, and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.